5, on page 6 in the Church Bible. And in verse 24, where we read that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now we're picking up our theme from this morning. And we're looking at this man, Enoch, who walked with God. And as you'll remember, by walking with God here, Enoch isn't just doing what every Christian does, even though every Christian does walk with God. He is doing something more than that. He is walking with God in a way or to a degree that perhaps ordinary believers do not. In other words, to put it very simply, he walked closely with God. Enoch walked closely with God. And as we saw in the morning, walking with God implies that you are on a journey with God, a journey that has a starting point and an end point. And we saw in the morning what that starting point was for Enoch. It's the same as for all of ourselves, too, if we are Christians. The walk with God begins by coming to God, coming to him in faith. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us what's involved in that. He who comes to God to walk with him must believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Enoch believed all that. He believed all that God had revealed about himself. And in spite of the fact that there was an ungodly civilization encroaching on their own civilization, he believed that it was not vain to serve the living and true God. God would reward those who called upon him and those who lived their lives in his service. And so acting on that, he came to God, not just for the first time, but habitually. He was a man who came to God. He delighted to be in God's presence. He delighted to be in God's worship. He delighted to be in God's fellowship or walking with God. So that's really where this walk begins, by coming to God. And because he has come to God in faith, he can then begin to walk with him. Because as the scripture says, two can walk together if they are agreed. Amos, of course, famously asks the question in chapter 3 and verse 3 of his prophecy, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? And there he's referring to the fact that Israel has fallen away from God and Israel sees nothing anymore the way that God sees it. So he says, well, how can you really be in fellowship with God when you don't see things the way God sees them, when you don't appreciate what God appreciates, when you don't judge as evil what God judges as evil, or when you don't praise as good what God praises as good? How can two really walk together unless they are agreed? 
And of course, that's so true all the time. It's true tonight regarding ourselves. How can we possibly claim meaningfully to be walking with God unless we are in agreement with God? And it's fair to say that every Christian is characterized by coming into alignment with God. We stop seeing things the way the world sees them because now we have the mind of Christ. So we agree with God. We agree with God about himself. God sees himself as holy, just, good, and true. We see God as holy, just, good, and true. Just as God justifies himself in all his dealings in the world, so we justify God in all his dealings in the world. We agree with God about ourselves too. He pronounces us sinful, under his condemnation, and without any righteousness of ourselves. We agree with that. That's how we can walk with God. That's how we see ourselves too, without any innate holiness, without any rights, without any entitlements. We are under God's condemnation and wrath. But we agree with God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as he sees him as altogether lovely, so we see the Lord Jesus as altogether lovely. Just as God is pleased with faith in Christ, as the means of salvation, so we are pleased with faith in Christ as the means of salvation. Just as the cross is glorious in the sight of God, so the cross is glorious in our sight. We agree. We agree. And we can walk with God because we agree. But let me think about this maybe in a slightly more focused way with you. For Enoch to walk with God, they must be in agreement. Let's say, first of all, that they must be in agreement about their destination, where they are going. Now, as God makes his way through this world, his chariot is going to one place and one place only. Anyone who walks with him is going home with him. That's the destination and, of course, we know where that is. We call it heaven. The letter to the Hebrews there calls it a country. It's a better country. Everything in the letter to the Hebrews is. It's full of better. It's got a better priest in it. It's got a better covenant. It's got a better tabernacle. It's a better everything. Well, there's a better country which we are sojourning to. It's called heaven. And in that country, we are sojourning especially to a city, which is again a better city. We're told that unlike the cities of this world, its maker and its builder is God. Literally, its architect and its constructor is God himself. It is the heavenly city. It is the new Jerusalem. We're going to a country, to a city, and even more specifically, we are going to our father's house where our Father himself dwells. And when we come to our Father's house, we sit there in a place of fellowship and of feasting and of rest. That's the destination. That's where we're going. And everyone walking with God is going there. 
And if you're really walking with God, you must have your heart set on that city. If you've got some other kind of destination, suppose you even call it heaven, but it's some other kind of place than the place which God has described in his word, then unless you've got your heart set on that one, you're not walking with God. Whoever you think you're walking with, you are not walking with God. I mean, there are plenty of people who think they're going to heaven. And uh, you ask them to describe heaven, and it's got nothing like the description that's contained in the word of God about heaven. It's a little bit like the way we were thinking about God, God this morning. I mean, people say, oh, I believe that there's a God. What's he like? Well, he's like this. And they'll describe the kind of God that they've constructed for themselves. Well, that's got nothing to do with reality. So live in that unreal world, if you wish and at your own peril. Well, the same is true here. There are many people who may say, well, I'm on my way to heaven. Well, are you? Is it the heaven that God describes? As Spurgeon once said, there are some people who are expecting to go to heaven and looking forward to going to heaven, whereas, he says, their natures have nothing to do with what heaven is actually like. And that's something to think about. If we are really going to heaven, do we have a nature that would be happy in heaven? Would you be happy in heaven? Would you be happy with God? Would you be happy with Christ? Would you be happy with Christians morning, noon, and night? Are you happy with Christians now? Are you happy with God now? Are you happy with Christ now? If you're not, what makes you think you will be then? No, that must be the destination. And just as you set your heart in it, so you set your face towards it, just as Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And only then can the journey really begin. So we agree about the destination. How can two walk together unless they're going to the same place? The second thing that Enoch and God need to be agreed on, or that you and God need to be agreed on, is the path by which you get there. Because, again, there is only one path to the celestial city, and you've got to be prepared to take it. And I suppose we could give that path two names. You can call it either the way of faith, or you could call it the highway of holiness. It carries both names. Both describe something important about this path. To be on it, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You also need to live a life of holiness. In Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet envisages people coming to faith and coming to Zion, coming to the house of God. And that's in spite of the fact that they're living in a wilderness and there seems to be no path to Zion. But suddenly there is a road. The valleys are lifted up. And the hills are pressed down so that it becomes possible to make your way there. Suddenly, he says, there is a highway there and a road. And Isaiah says, it shall be called, notice this road's got a name, it shall be called the Highway of Holiness, capital H, capital H. The unclean shall not walk on it. It shall be for others. 
Whoever walks the road, although a fool, although simple, he shall not go astray. The redeemed of the Lord shall walk in it. The ransomed of the Lord shall return, and they shall come to Zion with singing, home at last, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, we've got to agree with God that that's the way we're taking, because that's the only way God takes. And to take us home to heaven, we've got to walk that way. We've got to, as I said, come to God, believing that he is the rewarder of those who seek him, come to him through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, walking on the highway of holiness. Now, this highway is not an easy path to walk on. To start with, it's quite often dark. It's quite often dark, and you can hardly see what's in front of you. Very often you feel like Abraham, that you're moving, not knowing where you're going. You're pretty much very often led step by step without hardly a glimmer of light on your path in front of you. And again, it's often difficult to make progress on it. Not just that it's sometimes dark, but even sometimes when it's light, it's really hard going. And uh, quite often, there is a slow of despond in it, as Bunyan would say, or a hill difficulty to climb. Full of trials and tribulations and dangers and toils and snares. You know yourself that Christ referred to it as a narrow road that leads to life. And of course, he says, few there be that find it. And that's why the Lord tells us to consider well whether we're willing to walk in it or not. It is difficult. And uh, at one point in this ministry, when there were crowds following, he turned and said to them, which of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down first and count the cost? Have you got enough to finish it? In case after you've laid the foundation and you can't finish it, everyone begins to laugh and says, well, this man began to build and he wasn't able to finish. Or he says, to put it, an to put an an put it another way, what king going to make war against another king doesn't sit down first and consider, is he able with 10,000 men to meet the king that comes against him with 20,000? Or else, he says, as an alternative, while the other king is still at a distance, do you not send a delegation and ask for conditions of peace? So, he says, with you, in your case, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So, so it's not an easy way. And I'm conscious that saying such a thing might, might put you off even 
coming to God and taking steps on that way. I mean, you may be inclined to say, well, look, if, if this way is really difficult, if it's going to be hard, then am I better not taking it? And all I can say to you is better not taking it. Do you, do you understand where it's going? Do you understand that your own path might not stay as easy and as smooth as you think it is? It's a broad road, but believe me, the longer you walk on it, the more uncomfortable it gets. And at the end of the day, the destination is no good place. It's death and hell and misery and pain. And do you still think that's a better choice than to take a step onto this narrow road that leads to life, life more abundantly? leads to the knowledge of God, to the presence of God, to the fullness of God filling yourself. You say, well, what does it mean to lay a foundation and I'm not able to finish it? Well, that foundation is laid by people who haven't taken it seriously enough. People who haven't been in earnest. People who thought that that becoming a Christian was just a breeze. It was just taking a label to yourself or just buying an insurance policy and then you stick it in the drawer and forget about it until you actually need it. That's not what Christianity is like. People who do that will lay a foundation and they'll never finish it. But if you start out on this path in fear and trembling, if you start out conscious of your own weakness, if you start out asking that the one who walks with you will lead you and will never let you go. You'll finish it. You'll finish this journey, and he'll see to it that you finish that journey. It's all to do with faith. It's all to do with faith. You must believe that this God who walks with you is, and that he will remain. He will continue to be the rewarder of you every time you diligently seek him. And there is no other way, the highway of holiness. If it's true, as we read in the morning, that without faith it is impossible to please God, it is equally true that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. These are two texts to remember. They're two texts that belong together, and God has joined them together, and let no one put them asunder. They always belong. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And this highway on which you walk with God is a way of faith and a highway of holiness. Are you agreed with God to walk on this road? If so, God will walk with you. God will walk with you. You are agreed on the destination and on the path. If it worries you sometimes whether you're on this path of holiness or not, and I'm quite sure as a Christian it sometimes does worry you whether you're on it because you're so conscious of sin. I, I would say to you that one, one of the surest marks of actually being on it is that you're worried whether you're on it or not. Now, that may sound quite basic, but it's actually a pretty good rule of thumb. One of the signs of being on it is that you're often worried whether you're on it or not. In other words, you are concerned about personal holiness. 
If you're not concerned about personal holiness, I can't honestly give you a scrap of comfort about being on this journey. I honestly cannot. But if you are concerned about personal holiness, I most certainly can give you assurance about it. I mean, John says a wonderful thing in his first letter and in the third chapter, um, where he tells us, well, he speaks about the greatness of God's love. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And he says it, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. The full inheritance and the full glory, we, we haven't seen it yet. But, but he says we know that we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. We shall be holy as he is holy. And he says, and here's the point, whoever has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, in a way, that says it all. What it says simply is this, that if, if you desire to be holy as Christ is holy, you will be in the business of purifying yourself just as he is pure. That's why I say that if you're concerned about personal holiness, take comfort and be of good cheer. If you're not concerned about personal holiness, there's not much that I can say to comfort you or to assure you that you're on this road. I can only call you earnestly and quickly to serious self-examination. So we're agreed, and Enoch and God are agreed as to the destination of life and the path that Enoch must take. The third thing that they must agree about is their conversation. That may sound a strange thing, but to walk together implies conversation in pretty much the same way as eating together implies conversation. In other words, in the sense in which we come across eating together in the scripture, it always implies conversation. Well, so does walking together. To go on this journey from here to heaven along the way of faith and holiness means that we must be agreed on our conversation as we go there. We must be agreed to have fellowship. And we must agree on the theme of that fellowship, which is supremely his own son. God delights in his own son. And his, his son has a special delight to him having accomplished the work that was given him to do at such great cost to himself. It is the heart of the Father that communicates itself to us when he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The only crisis in Christ's life at which these words were not uttered was at Calvary, because it would not be fit for them to be said or heard. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't in the heart of God. At every point, this is his beloved son in whom he was well pleased, and he expects us to be so pleased with that son too that it is the theme of our conversation. We agree 
as we agree not just with God, but with everyone else on the highway of holiness, we agree on the excellence of the person of the Son of God and on the excellence of his work as our Savior and our Redeemer. And because we meet God there, because we meet God in Christ and we agree with God in Christ, we can speak all the time. And fellowship is a mutual speaking, is it not? Or at least as I, as I often explain it or define it, it, it is a mutual exchange of information, whether spoken or otherwise. Uh, me in fellowship with you means that I take what's in my heart and give it to you, and you take what's in your heart and you give it to me. That's what fellowship is. It's not sitting together. Fellowship is me giving myself to you and you giving yourself to me. And when we walk with God, that is what happens. As Mr. Gillis spoke about Saul of Tarsus recently, he drew attention to behold, he prays, God, <clears throat> Saul at last is really communicating with God. See, on this journey, we begin, we begin to speak with God. We unburden ourselves to God. We present our requests to God in prayer. We offer him our praise with our words, with our songs in the Psalms. We share with God our thoughts and our feelings and our fears and our failures. We confess our sin. We open them out and we lay them before him. But every fellowship is two-way. God isn't interested in a monologue on this journey. He really is not. And we shouldn't be interested in a monologue either. God delights to speak to us as we delight to speak to him. He speaks to us as he opens out the word and as he presents the sacraments. And he comforts us directly with his own Holy Spirit, apportioning us what we need to guide, to lead, to conduct, to confirm, to admonish, to strengthen, to exhort. He does these things all the time as our encourager and our comforter, fills our cup and rejoices our heart. Conversation, a fellowship, a real, living, spiritual exchange. So we must agree on the destination, the path by which we get there, and the conversation that takes place on the way. Now let me say that there are two things that can happen to us on that journey in our relationship with God. Two things that can happen to us on our walk. The first is that we can either drift. First is that we can drift. The second is that we can get closer. The first, we can drift. We can begin to fall behind the Savior, and we can fall so far behind Him that we lose sight of Him. Or perhaps even we can take a bypath. Bunyan again speaks of that 
in his pilgrim's progress. He tells us that there's an easy bypath that can be taken when the road is hard. And Pilgrim did that. And uh, you can lose sight of the Savior. Of course, Bunyan's Pilgrim ended up in the company of giant despair in Doubting Castle. And he only got out of Doubting Castle by using the key called Promise, which was able to unlock every single door in Doubting Castle. But he got there, and he got there in the company of giant despair because he took the wrong path, and he took the wrong path because the path that he was on was difficult. And when the path on which you are becomes difficult, it is very tempting to lose sight of the Savior beside you. Peter, of course, is the great example of that. When he stepped out of the boat, he walked on water. When he took his eyes off the Savior, and when he placed his eyes on the wind and on the waves and on the sea boisterous, he began to sink. Same idea with a change of figure. If you begin to take your eyes off your companion and start focusing on the difficulty of the road or even the hill ahead, it is tempting to lose sight of your guide, your acquaintance, the one with whom you have fellowship, and to take the wrong path. Now, I could say much on this, but let me just content myself, even if I don't content you by saying that one gram of prevention here is worth a hundred kilos of cure. One gram of prevention is worth a hundred kilos of cure. The best way to stay on the path and to stay close to God is by keeping talking to him. Simple as that. Keep talking to him and keep listening to him. Let the conversation flow two ways. Stay attentive to the word. Stay attentive to the sacraments. Stay attentive to the means of grace and to prayer meetings. And at the same time, stay in your secret place. Unburden yourself. Tell God that the way is hard. Tell God the difficulty of the path. Don't try and negotiate it yourself without the companionship and the guide of your Savior. And if you keep talking, you won't fall behind, and neither will you lose sight of him. If you have strayed, let me just say what the Word of God says to you, and that is to repent and to do the first works. Sometimes when people say to me that I, I don't feel I am what I was at the beginning, Sometimes I feel that the best answer to that is, well, do what you did at the beginning then. Do, look at your life now and look at your life then and ask, ask yourself, what did I do then that I don't do now? I'm not going to package that for you. Do it yourself. Only you know what you did then that you don't do now. But prevention is better than cure. Keep talking to God and keep allowing God to talk to you, especially when the way is difficult. Now, the second possibility is this, that instead of drifting from God, you actually draw nearer 
to God in such a way that you're closer to him and know him better. And the influence of his wonderful holiness just exerts itself more and more in your life. Now, I think that that is what happened to Enoch. That at a particular time in Enoch's life, he drew near to God. Or let me put it this way, he drew nearer to God than he had ever been before. There is such a thing in the lives of Christians. Sometimes because charismatic theology describes it as a second blessing, we tend to discount the thing. Now, just because people put wrong labels on things doesn't mean that we throw them away. There is such a thing. Well, in fact, there's nothing wrong with saying a second blessing while we're at it. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But there is such a thing in the Christian life as passing through experiences of particular crisis when we move up a level by the grace of God, or to keep the figure here, when we move closer to the one that we're actually walking with. The Bible is full of it. Not just experiences in which people draw nearer to God and then just move away, like just an experience, for example, such as Perhaps you might have it a communion season or something like that. But I'm talking about a decisive, life-changing, transformative spiritual event that leaves you not the man and the woman that you were before. The Bible is full of examples. And when you think about it, you know them well. You know of Jacob, who was crippled by God at Peniel. And it doesn't sound a good thing to be crippled. And to be walking for the rest of your life with a noticeable limp and leaning on the top of your staff. But the fact of the matter is that that night when Jacob wrestled with God, he was a changed man. The Jacob who left Peniel was not the same Jacob that came to Peniel. He learned that night how to cling to the God that he had been fighting against. He learned how to really trust him and to wait for him and to believe in him. And that night, Jacob, who was already a Christian, became Israel. He became a prince with God. He wrestled with God, and he prevailed. He was a changed and transformed man, nearer to God, walking more closely with God than he had been before. Or Simon, Simon Peter, that is who was beside the lake, sitting with Christ and the disciples, having breakfast. And as he ate with the Lord, the Lord, of course, famously questioned him and humbled him. And there's a way in which you might feel that Peter was exposed by the fireside that morning, and so he was. But that's not the worst thing that can happen to us. As well as being exposed, Peter was mended. In fact, Simon became Peter that morning. That morning, he was restored and renewed and became a stronger spiritual man than he had ever been before. You don't, again, read really of Peter following at a distance, but someone who follows the Lord much more closely. Now, is that not what we have here in connection with Enoch? You'll remember the pattern if you just glance at the page again in chapter 5, we noticed the pattern very closely this morning. Every single generation follows the same pattern. The patriarch lives X amount of years. 
gives birth to the distinctive seed. Then the patriarch lives Y number of years and the patriarch dies. The same pattern is followed before Enoch and after Enoch. Only Enoch breaks it. And he breaks it in verse 21, which begins like the rest. We're told that he lived 65 years and then he gives birth to the seed. Methuselah. After we got Methuselah, we expect to read that Enoch lived 300 years, but lo and behold, it says he walked with God 300 years. And then we're told that all the days of Enoch in verse 23 were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And then instead of saying he died, he simply was not. And he was not. For God took him. Instead of saying he lived, we're told that he walked with God, at least after 65. Up to 65, he lived. After 65, he walked with God. Is that not interesting? Why didn't he walk with God all the time? I would suggest to you that he began to really walk with God at 65. Life begins at what? 40? 65? 70? Who knows? Some people become Christians at an old age. That's when life begins. Even as a Christian, there can be a transformative event in your life that you pretty much date the rest of your life from, like Peniel. Or like that breakfast beside the Sea of Galilee. What was it about being 65 that might have changed uh, Enoch's life? Might it not be the birth of his son? The birth of a child can be a very transformative event in a mother's life and in a father's life. Many a mother and father will recall how they felt when a child first made their entrance into this world's some of us can recall a, a heavy sense of responsibility that immediately came upon your shoulders. I mean, there are lots of things, lots of experiences. It is, it is in itself a transformative thing, but it, it can be a spiritually transformative thing. For 65 years, he lives, but for the next 300 years, he walks with God. And maybe there was something about this son, perhaps from the moment that he appeared in the world, that made Enoch conscious of his need of God and gave him a deep desire for God. But God can use any event to that end. I mentioned even on Wednesday night, he can come into your life through a friend, through somebody's witness, perhaps through the witness of someone who was a burning, who is a burning and shining light like you used to be in the past. And it brings before you how you used to live and how you used to be. And maybe you, the knowledge that you have of this person now calls you back and calls you closer to God. It can be anything, anything, but it calls you nearer to God. And even as you contemplate coming nearer to God, you hear God saying, come to me and I won't cast you out. If you want to walk closer with me, I won't push you away, and I won't keep you at a distance. Any distance between us is your call. It's not mine. I'm always open 
for a closer walk with you. And as Enoch draws especially near to God for the rest of his life, which is the bulk of his life, he does so believing that God will reward him, because that's what the letter to the Hebrews tells us. Now, Enoch's life can't have been easy. Personally, I mean, I I can't prove this, but I think the Bible indicates that there must have been some interaction between himself and Lamech in the seventh generation. I highlighted the fact in the morning that although the two seeds began geographically apart and were spiritually poles apart, one of the things that brought the final judgment of the flood upon the earth was the mingling of the seeds and the world coming into the church and the church becoming like the world. And I've no doubt in, in, um, in Lamech and Enoch's day that there is interaction. And surely it's significant that a fragment of Lamech's poetry is, cons- is preserved for us on the dark side in Genesis 4. And there is a fragment of Enoch's preaching preserved for us in Jude in the New Testament. Perhaps you can just turn to that. It's easy to find the letter Jude, although it's only one chapter long. It's just the very last letter before the book of the Revelation. So it's the second last book in the Bible, the epistle of Jude. And um, Jude is warning this early church. Still an early church, but he's warning them against false teachers who are coming into the church. In verse 11, woe to them. They have gone in the way of Cain. Now, these are not people who are walking with God, although they claim to be. In fact, they're they're walking in the way of Cain. They are running, actually, greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perishing in the rebellion of Korah. Now, look at verse 14. He goes right back to the seventh generation in world history, and he tells us that Enoch, the seventh, that's the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied about these men. So Enoch is prophesying about ungodly people who will arise at the end of the world, saying, and here you have Enoch's fragment of prophecy, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. This is the second coming. It's amazing that Enoch is seeing that. He comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly. By the way, notice the repetition of this word ungodly here. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Isn't it amazing that the the testimony of this man in his generation was recorded for us in the New Testament? A man who was so remarkable in, in his walk with God that he was simply translated to heaven. I suppose... It's not strange that his words are recorded for us in the New Testament. But what strikes me is at least interesting and probably persuasive when it comes to an argument is that there is some kind of correspondence between what Enoch says and what Lamech says. Lamech stands up and boasts to his wives 
in a very uh, chauvinistic type of way about his own attainments, his own violent lifestyle, and his immunity from judgment. He can sin with impunity. I have killed a man from wounding me, and if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. No one's going to mess with me. It's a degenerate, sexualized, violent society. And here is Enoch saying, oh, God is real. God does judge. You cannot sin with impunity. He will make a final and complete severance between the righteous and the wicked. Now, I don't know. I mean, I believe with all my heart that these two pieces belong to each other, that one is against each other. I, I wonder which one came first. There's a case to be made both ways. That Enoch hears the arrogance of Lamech and preaches the judgment of God against it. On the other hand, it may be that Lamech listens to Enoch speaking the judgment of God, and he says, I'll do what I like, and no one can cut across me, or I'll cut him down. Either way, the Spirit of the Lord raises a standard against the evil when it comes in like a flood. Now, when you live and witness like that, it's not easy. Sometimes our lives can be easy because we don't live and witness like that. We sometimes have to be honest and admit it. I suppose the holier Enoch is, the more difficult life is for him in that degenerating world. A world that was so rapidly filling with violence and every kind of abandonment that it was just ripe for the judgment of God. But as he draws near to God in his difficulty... He can look to God to reward him. And for Enoch, the reward, I would suggest, surely exceeded anything that he really expected. One day, as Enoch walked with God, meditating and praying, suddenly the heavens opened. And as was the case with Elijah, there is a chariot of fire from God, a chariot of angelic servants. And like Elijah, he is taken away. The same Hebrew verb used of Elijah as is used of Enoch, taken away, taken away by God. I know we're not told that there was a chariot here or a chariot of fire. I know we're not told that he was accompanied by angels, but we're led to believe elsewhere in the scriptures that that's always the case. Just because we see Elijah rise to heaven, so we see, we're given to see the angels who accompany him. The Lord Jesus tells us that when Lazarus the beggar died, he had no funeral cortege, possibly no funeral even, but he was escorted by the angels into Abraham's bosom. I don't think in telling us that the Lord is telling us anything unusual, I think he is telling us what is usual and what is normative. That is that every time the Lord's people go home into glory, they are accompanied into glory by the servants of the Lord, the angels who are the servants of the Lord's people. You will not yourself be taken into glory without the accompaniment 
of the angels who will escort you there as sons and daughters of God, a dignity that they don't themselves share. But they won't resent doing it. To them, it is an honor to escort you, brother or sister, into the very presence of God. That's why, because Enoch was raised bodily into glory, we can absolutely believe that he is accompanied himself by a chariot of fire. This godly man, a man who didn't just walk with God like others did in his generation, but really walked with God and lived so closely with God that to be in this world must have been difficult, was eased out of this difficulty in the gentle, loving kindness of God, who just dropped a hand, as it were, down from heaven and took him out of it, raised him out of it, so that As Paul says in the twinkling of an eye, as it were at the last trump, his mortality is swallowed up of immortality, and death is swallowed up in life, and he's taken away to be forever with the Lord. Why? But I suppose just in closing, for the world's sake and for his own sake, if I suggested in the morning If one of the problems in the world was that people had ceased to believe that God is and ceased to believe that God was actually the rewarder of those who diligently sought him, well, let them look for Enoch then. The Bible tells us that he wasn't found. By implication, he was looked for. Look for him all you like. Look for him in the rocks. Look for him in the caves. He's gone. And he's gone because he was raised. I wouldn't be surprised if he was raised visibly, if there were witnesses to his disappearance. But in any case, he simply was not found. That's God's way of saying to an unbelieving world, I am. You doubt God is, I am. You doubt whether it makes any difference in life, whether you are a believer or not, that there is no reward really for those who serve the Lord in comparison with those who don't serve the Lord. I reward those who diligently seek me. And I've taken Enoch home to his reward. So it is a witness to an unbelieving world. But he also took him home for his own sake. Since 65, it was true for Enoch that for him to live was Christ. I'm sure he walked with God before that, but in a special way since 65, for him to live was Christ. So we can't say that to die will be gain, but simply to leave this world will be gain. That's what it was for Enoch. I think it saved him agony. It saved strife in his gentle soul to be taken forever with the Lord. Now, we can't uh, judge the blessing that was unless we value God's company and the celestial city. But let's just say that for Enoch, walking closely with God did sweeten his journey, and it quickened his journey heavenward. 
It'll do the same for us too. Walking closely with God might bring the odd difficulty, but what sweetness it'll bring, what blessing it'll bring, what anticipation it'll bring, how it will open heaven, and how it will quicken our path heavenward. It's, it's just not good to be at a distance from God, is it? It's not good. Enoch walked with God. May you and I do the same. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, uh, sweeten our own portion, we pray, by drawing us nearer to yourself. And uh, we thought on a past evening in our prayer meeting of how you sometimes put your hand through the latch of the door and leave some fragrance behind to encourage us. So, Lord, may we recognize that our best life is a life with God. And we pray that all of us would reach that place where we say that for us uh, to live is Christ and to die will be gain. Bless our meditation upon your word and upon your servant. In the Savior's name, amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 73 on page 316. And we sing to the tune, Weather Be. I'm sure uh, Enoch could think of people like Lamech in verse 18 and say, Assuredly, thou didst them set a slippery place upon them. Suddenly, thou cast down into destruction. Of himself, he can say in verse 23, Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand. Now, this is someone who's walking with God, obviously very closely, and still upholdest me. Thou with thy counsel, while I live, wilt me conduct and guide, and to thy glory afterward receive me to abide. Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? Can Enoch not breathe these words so earnestly? And in the earth whom I desire besides thee, there is none. My flesh and heart doth faint and fail, but God doth fail me never. For of my heart God is the strength and portion forever. Wonderful words, uh, wonderful praise, and let's stand to sing them to God's praise. Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.